What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rock Strikes 10 and cnjradio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels, or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock
welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. Okay, welcome back to our super spectacular retrospective tribute to the year 1993. You were at part two of the odds and ends of 1993. It's going to be a four-parter for them. And then we move on to our albums countdown of 1993. It's going to be a good one. What you heard here at the top of the show, do I have to even tell you who that is? But I'll go ahead and tell you anyway. The king of the surf guitar, the late, great, iconic innovator, Mr. Dick Dale, getting out in front of his 1994 comeback with the song Nitro right there from his comeback album, Tribal Thunder. Yeah, super fun record. And once again, just in case you're new to the show, or if this is your first show, welcome. Go back to the previous episode so you can get it done the right way. And I can explain to you properly what the odds and ends are. The reason why all instrumental albums are on the odds and ends, in case you forgot or in case you don't know, is even though I like a good amount of instrumental albums, they're really hard for me to score compared to other albums with vocals on them. I feel like that's a fair assessment. doesn't make them any less of a record. And it definitely doesn't make Dick Dale any less of an artist. Or other people that do predominantly instrumental albums, like a Steve Vai or something like that. But the fact that I even mentioned... Steve Vai's name basically means no Dick Dale, no Steve Vai, and a lot of other cool guys that came along after him. But yes, in case you're wondering why I said Dick Dale was getting out in front of his comeback is because he put out his comeback record in 1993, and there will be a full-blown revival of Dick Dale's music in 1994 due to the inclusion of Miserloo in Pulp Fiction. More on that next year. So yes, next song here, and if you forgot, I'm going A to Z on the odds and ends as far as the artist's name. Here for 1993, this next song comes from a Rarities compilation by this band. Def Leppard surprising people in 1993 putting out another record after making fans wait five years for a new record. Is that fair to say that fans waited five years for a new Def Leppard album? Because as the album is out, and as it's going, and as people are into it, are you really waiting around for the new album? (laughs) I always thought that that was a funny thing to say. I would say by the time Hysteria Mania wore off, it was probably like late 89, early 90, definitely by the dawn of the 90s, the Hysteria of Hysteria had worn off. And then, yes, at that point, we were waiting for a new record. We probably should have got a new record in 1990. I feel like that's fair. And you know why? Because, for the most part, Def Leppard was sitting on some damn good material in 1990 by then. Just the songs they cut out of Hysteria and some of the songs they cut off of Pyromania. They had some good shit going on. Yeah, I know know why they didn't put out a record in 90. The band was in massive turmoil with steve clark and everything and i get it hey all 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 the love and respect steve clark absolutely one of my all-time all-time favorite guitar players my second favorite rhythm guitarist after malcolm young so yes i should say let's get serious for a second yeah i know why they didn't put out a record in 90 but if steve had had his stuff together it would have been damn cool if they'd have put out this killer record in 1990 like i said they had the material to go with it Maybe dial back the production a little bit. Do a little bit more bare bones. I don't know. 
But I think a record like that may have sounded closer to Pyromania than Asteria, even though they're very similar in style and some sound. Because most of the stuff on Retroactive is stuff from in and around that period, from 1984, 1983, whatever, to 1987. And I know the other reason that Def Leppard put out the Retroactive album in 1993 was to pay tribute to the late, great Steve Clark. And as they say in their own words, close the chapter on that era of their career. And despite the over-inclusion of the multiple versions of Miss You in a Heartbeat and Two Steps Behind, that stuff aside, there's some killer stuff on Retroactive. And if you're a fan of this band, and let's say, like me, you were disappointed in Adrenalize, Retroactive is a good rebound stylistically. So even though it's not a thought-out studio album, you should listen to it. If you never have, if you've never given it a chance, you got to get on it. This song right here always been one of my favorite Def Leppard songs, period. So I wish it had had a home on a record. I think it was the B-side, if I'm not mistaken, to pour some sugar on me. So at least a good amount of people heard it. If they bothered to flip the single over, they heard this amazing jam right here. And going through it, I was like, man, what would, what would I cut off Hysteria to include this? I'm sure some people would say, oh, I've got a good amount of songs to cut off. Well, I love Hysteria. My initial gut reaction when I really listened to it this time, I thought about it. Like, what would I take off or what would I do with this song to put it on a record? And for me, I think I'm not cutting anything off of Hysteria since it's such a long album anyway. What's another four minutes, right? You could put it on there. You could fit it on there. Who are we kidding? So I say... Put this song after God's of War. So just imagine in your head right now the guns and everything and all the hullabaloo, all the filler at the end of God's of War. And then imagine it goes right into this song right here. This is Ring of Fire. <laughs>
Oh man, oh man, how I love that song. Like I said before, I played it. That's one of my favorite Def Leppard songs, period. Ring of Fire right there, from Retroactive, officially. And yes, I guess that would go on one of my ongoing series. The song title remains the same, because obviously when you hear the phrase Ring of Fire, you think of Johnny Cash and that iconic country song. And I'm pretty positive that's the last time I played that song on the show was for inclusion on the song title remains the same so go back and find that episode and i'm pretty sure you'll hear ring of fire on there as well but speaking of famous country songs this next one is actually a cover of a famous country song one of the most famous famous classic old school country songs of all time back when it was country and western via this gentleman right here a favorite of mine one of my favorite rock personalities in the world and in 1993 not having the best decade so far in the 90s. Started off great, and then after a couple of years, he was out of a gig, out of the band that he helped get off the ground. I'm talking about C.C. DeVille, ex-Poison guitarist at this point in 1993. I was following the saga of the Poison C.C. breakup. Broke my heart, once again, because... Poison was my first concert, so I was definitely invested in this band. I'm a fan of this band, and yeah, I saw the VMAs and everything, and I think there's a lot of false narrative that goes along with that VMA appearance being the quote-unquote last straw in which they used it as an excuse to fire CC. Here's the thing, and this comes all the way back from my memory bank. I remember specifically watching one of the pre-taped interviews for the Video Music Awards, that year in 1991 the year of that infamous performance and i remember specifically brett michaels telling one of the interviewers on mtv that they were going to play talk dirty to me on the show as a way of paying tribute to the beginning of their career where it all started for them and their relationship with mtv so i remember specifically going huh that's interesting that they're going to play talk dirty to me but that's fine you know they're off the flesh and blood tour have a little fun cut a little loose it's a crowd pleaser. Let's be having it. So the fact that now when they tell the story about how CC got fired and when they told the initial story about him being fired, saying that he started playing Talk Dirty to Me and we weren't supposed to play that. We were supposed to play on Skinny Bop. Well, that's an out and out lie now, isn't it? Yeah. So they did CC Dirty on that. They threw him under the bus for something that was already pre-planned. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you could see why I'm a little upset about that. I mean, it, I guess it shouldn't upset me. It didn't happen to me. But as a fan, I feel a little betrayed by that. Also, at least Brett and some of the people have said, hey, we were no angels. We were all doing our own thing. And that's the thing is, even like you hear about when Dave Mustaine got kicked out of Metallica. It's like he got kicked out of a band full of alcoholics. But you just happen to be the worst alcoholic of the four. And I guess that's the idea is that they couldn't jive with CC anymore. Here's the other thing. CC co-wrote some of their best tunes initially and was a big part of that band. And as you can tell, and I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it right here. Why not? Native Tongue will not be on the 1993 Best Albums Countdown here because it's not that great and it's sure as hell not that fun at all. And a big reason for that is because CC ain't in it. There you go. Saying my piece right there. So fast forwarding through all that, yet flashing back at the same time, I was following the saga of this whole breakup, and I was really rooting for CeCe to do something big. 
And I read for a couple of years at that point that he had signed a record deal with the burgeoning Hollywood Records, who would go on to distribute the Queen catalog, and that was a big deal for him. So they had some money to kick around. I'd heard that CC signed with Hollywood Records, and I thought that was a good thing. And then I started hearing like, okay, we don't know the band name yet. It was called DeVille. At some point it was called Needle Park. They went through a couple of different singers, more on that later. But at the end of the day, the record just never seemed to happen. That record did kind of become something else, but you'll hear about that on the album's countdown coming up in a few episodes. But we got one official solo release by CeCe DeVille, and it was on the soundtrack to the Polly Shore Fish Out of Water vehicle called Son-in-Law. I actually like Son-in-Law. I'm a fan of the movie. I saw it in the theater when it came out, probably the first day it came out. I'm, I'm sure I rode my bike out to the Central Park Theater to go see it. Fun little movie if you haven't seen it. And since Thanksgiving's coming up as of this recording, it's a Thanksgiving movie. So have at it. Pre-game it before you get to the main event of playing Strange and Automobiles. Maybe throw Dutch in the middle of there between it. And you have a good old family-friendly movie marathon for your Thanksgiving. But yes, there was one official CeCe DeVille solo release on the Son-in-Law soundtrack. This song is a cover of a country-western classic, and it features vocals by the great Spike of the London Choir Boys. So here it is. I have prepared your ears and your psyche for this. This is CeCe DeVille with Hey Good Lookin'. Fitting the theme of the son-in-law film with the rock and roll dude from California going out to the sticks 
And getting his country on, yes, that was Cece DeVille with Friends featuring Spike of the London Choir Boys. That was the Hank Williams classic, Hey, Good Looking. Hey, if you didn't enjoy that, that's fine. That's your journey. I could have put Polly's version of Thank God I'm a Country Boy on here, and I didn't. So, you're welcome. I'm your friend. No, I love Polly, actually. He's got a record coming out of covers, so listen for that, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. On a future episode. From wacky random soundtrack tune to yet another soundtrack tune. I guess wacky in its own way. This soundtrack right here actually still gets talked about to this day. Even had a little bit of a vinyl reissue here a few years ago. And it's one of those things where the soundtrack definitely became and still is more popular than the film. But I actually really like the film. But I'm talking about the soundtrack to Judgment Night. Of course, the big thing on this soundtrack is it appears to be where they just drew band names out of two different hats. One rock hat and one rap hat. And they made them do a tune together. Well, it's probably not that random in the sense I know that Onyx and Biohazard had already been doing stuff together by that point, And they're on there doing the title cut. But almost like a tribute album, it's very 50-50 for me. There's some stuff on here that absolutely rules. And there's some stuff on here I'm like, eh. And there's some stuff sometimes where you're like, why is the other band even on here? <laughs> so this, that happens too. On these collaborations, maybe somebody shows up a little bit more to the studio than the other act does, and then that other band dominates the duet. I I don't know. I wasn't there. But there's some cool stuff on Judgment Night. I'm going to go ahead and feature two tracks from it here on the four-parter Odds and Ends, and it was really hard for me to cut off some of the other ones. But I'm going with two of them, starting with this one, and I believe the second one will be on part four here coming up. And that's what A to Z does. But yes, let's get into it right here. This is a fun collaboration where both bands really do shine. Here is Faith No More with the Booyah Tribe. This is Another Body Murdered. Deals to make a kill, and then the one looking gonna get that 
ass killed. I'm living like a criminal when criminal I be. And I'm respected in the hood like a G. But if they think about stitching, then they gone. I'm taking off their heads with a motherfucking chrome. I gotta pay the pay the pain I get through. And I ain't through till I'm dumping on the boot. I see the boot running and running, but where they going? Had the wits and my murder, now they know it. Would they blast or blast or let them pass? I had to think that my life was going in a blast. If I wait to take it longer, that'll be my ass. collaboration there by faith no more along with the booyah tribe that was another body murdered from the judgment night soundtrack i just found this out a few days ago i've often said actually and i'm going to sound like a hypocrite here because i have not been following the career of the booyah tribe over these last 30 years which is a mistake on my part because i was like man you hear that track it's like man how come those guys weren't bigger than they were they're definitely one of the more obscure rap acts on the Judgment Night soundtrack. This big freaking Samoan guys, great stage presence, and they actually did, more often than not, from what I understand, work with a live band on stage when they would perform. They're actually still technically an active band, and they never broke up. (laughs) But the weird thing is, like, three dudes from that track have all passed away in the last five years. But the band is still going. So I'll just say, I'm going to dedicate that track to the memory of those three guys. Gangster Rid, The Godfather, and Monster O. Rest in peace, guys. Yes, Booyah Tribe deserved better, for sure. Okay, let's go to something completely different. Back last year, during the odds and ends of 1992, I featured something from the Volume 1 of a live album. And now, the year after that, it's time for Volume 2. 
So in 92, Genesis put out The Way We Walk, Volume 1, The Shorts. And that was them putting all the hits and everything that the majority of the people that show up to see them play these stadiums would want to hear. And let's be honest, hardcore fans alike also like those songs. I feel like for the most part, with the exception of a few people and a few songs, show up to hear the hits. Now, you can love the hits and love the deep cuts as well. You can be an all-encompassing fan. It's possible. So for the all-encompassing fan, and for maybe even the fans that just out-and-out love the deep cuts, a.k.a., for the most part, the longs, Genesis came correct and delivered The Way We Walk, Volume 2, The Longs. Not a lot of songs on this, but it is a full-length single disc with like six songs on it. So the longs, it is as advertised. So I listened to this. I was morbidly curious in a sense, but yeah, of course, the musicianship on here, top notch. It's really neat to hear this band along with their live members pull these songs off because obviously they're not easy to play. They're definitely a lot more proggy than, let's say, Invisible Touch. So just on style points, I wanted to reward Genesis for having the balls to put out this kind of a record. So I'm going to play a song. It's going to be a bit long, but I feel like it doesn't really wear out its welcome too much. And also there were a handful of good songs on We Can't Dance. It's not a great record for me, but it's not bad either. And they had a song in there that really stuck out. So I was like, okay, well, it's on the Volume 2 live album, so I'll play it when we get to that. So here's me paying off that promise. So here is Genesis. Strap yourselves in. Genesis with a song maybe you haven't heard. But pretty cool live here. It's called Driving the Last Spike. Everything 
there you have it right there genesis with an epic epic song right there driving the last spike from the way we walk volume two the longs and as i mentioned before that track that song originally comes from the we can't dance album which may have a few extra ears on it now possibly due to ghost's recent cover of jesus he knows me if you haven't heard it yet go look that up i always liked that song so really happy that ghost brought it back from the dead And for this next song, I feel very confident in saying 
I gotta be the only music podcaster guy in the entire world that will feature not one, but two songs, technically, from the Son-in-Law soundtrack on one episode. Now, I didn't actually intend this entry as an entry for the Son-in-Law soundtrack. It just happens to be on there. I'm actually representing a different title altogether, but... As I was looking over the track listing a few segments ago, I was like, oh shit, yeah, it is on there, isn't it? Well, I didn't plan that, but here you have it. This song also appears on the Son-in-Law soundtrack. But whilst the Son-in-Law soundtrack died a quick death, this thing actually had a lot of legs. So this started really in 1992 with a video-only release. This harkens back to what Devo did before they ever put an album out. They were an all-video band. And they did not put out records for a few years. They were just doing video because video was the future. But the fact that they also wanted to do crazy visuals were like, we are just going to do a video. We are not going to put a record out. Maybe because they thought there wasn't any label interest. Maybe they were already told there was no label interest. But by the time 1993 rolled around, said home video got so much buzz and so much attention and started selling and being special ordered everywhere in all these record stores and video stores that a label stepped up, signed them, and put out the official soundtrack to Green Jello's Serial Killer movie. And it became the Serial Killer soundtrack in 1993. So officially it's a 1993 release. And I remember specifically hearing Three Little Pigs for the very first time on Z-Rock one random weekday night on new stuff for an hour. And I was like, this is so ridiculous. But I did think it was kind of genius at the same time. Immediately it caught on with me. And then a few months later, it started popping up in places. I'm like, okay, here we go. I knew it was going to be big if somebody got a hold of it. And it happened. Fun fact, if you didn't know this, they were all buddies and roommates with the tool guys. So whenever you hear not by the hair of my chinny chin chin on three little pigs, that is Maynard from tool. As far as I know, Danny Carey plays all the drums on the Serial Killer soundtrack. So that's fun. I think Adam Jones does some stuff on there too. So that makes sense. If you know the kind of humor that Tool has, then yeah, it's like, oh yeah, of course they know Green Jello. And this record did so well and sold so many copies. It got so much attention that they got sued by Jello and they had to change their name to Green Jelly. Now, not just the change of the name occurred when it came time for the repressing. Something else got changed between the pressing, which is from this song that I'm going to feature. Now, I'm going to play the real version, the original, uncensored, unedited version of this song. But when you hear the solo section, just know that if you go to stream this song right now on Spotify or anywhere else, you will not hear the solo section here. You will hear... This weird muted thing, and then the last verse won't make any sense now. The joke is dead. So, in case you've never heard anything but Three Little Pigs, you're about to hear your second Green Jello song. And this is my favorite song on the record. Nice, fun, scuzzy rock and roll song here called Electric Harley House of Love. Turn it up.
Yes, super fun stuff right there by Green Jello, Electric Harley, House of Love. I remember that being the kickoff song of the B-side of the cassette. And yes, the solo section, which blatantly rips off Metallica's Inner Sandman, so much so that they even reference it on purpose in that last verse. If you go listen to it now or on the Green Jelly version, the amended version, the joke is still there, but the riffs are not, so it makes no sense and the joke dies there in the edit. It's like this guitar bit in the same key, but it doesn't go anywhere, and you could tell it's inserted in. It's so bad and blatant, so no, never listen to that, honestly. Just get the original. You can still track down Green Jello versions of Serial Killer, and they're not that expensive because there's a lot of copies floating around there. So get that version. And don't stream it or listen to the new amended version. Also, for extra credit, go look up the official video of this. Not the soundtrack movie version, but the official video of this song. And that's how you have to type it in. Electric Carly House of Love official video. They repurpose stuff from the original film, but also include shots of a newly performed performance video of this that they did somewhere in California. And you will find some really really cool guest stars on stage backstage shenanigans abound i won't spoil who's in it go look up the video it's really fun it never really got played anywhere that i can tell but i remember seeing a feature on like mtv news or something like that with some of the uh, goings on and everything so yes go look up the official video with all the footage of that song on there and speaking of fun I said on the previous part that I will not tolerate any backtalk about Jim Valance in my house. And another amendment to add to that list, I will not tolerate any hate for the spaghetti incident by Guns N' Roses. I could do a whole thing once again about how important this album is to me. But if you haven't heard it, I implore you to go back and listen to episode 323 of Rock Strikes 10 where you'll hear myself and LC from the world-famous Cobras and Fire podcast, where we expound and nerd out on the Spaghetti Incident by Guns N' Roses, and we play 10 originals from that track list. It's a lot of fun. Go check it out. But in short, if you're not going to listen to this episode, I won't reward you with all the canter that I have here. Like I said, go back and listen to 323. I will just say, in 1993... I was about 14 years old, finishing up junior high school, still very impressionable in my taste, angry junior high kid, nothing really going on, that kind of thing, and I was big into Guns N' Roses, they were the third ever concert that I attended, and then I think the fifth concert, yeah, because I saw the stadium tour with Metallica, that was my fifth show, got episodes on that as well. But they put out the Spaghetti Incident after they finish up that stadium tour as a way to keep us patient and wait around for the next supposed studio album. Now, despite the fact that that not really coming out in any kind of generation, the Spaghetti Incident proved to be an important album for me, in short, because I had really never heard any of these songs, the original versions, with the exception of Hair of the Dog by Nazareth. In fact, that even though I did already own Nevermind the Bullocks by the Sex Pistols, the song that they cover by the Sex Pistols is not on that album. So they went pretty deep. And I was aware of a couple of the bands that they represented on here, but I never really heard, heard them. 
and I never really thought to seek them out until this record. So this album opened up a lot of great taste, and a lot of great music for Joey here. Bands like The Damned and Fear and the Iggy Pop side of the Stooges era. Just really important once again. So let's play a couple of songs from Spaghetti Incident. Such an important album for me that I have to do a two for right here. So speaking of fun, let's kick things off with Ain't It Fun. Enjoy.
Yes, and you can thank me for not making that a threefer right there and leaving off the Charles Manson cover. But that was Guns and Effin' Roses with Ain't It Fun, which was originally a Dead Boy song. Dead Boys, that could be a whole other thing. Big Family Tree there as well with the damned Lords of the New Church. Ugh, okay. And that's a true duet between Axl Rose and Michael Monroe. Michael appeared quite a bit on the Use Your Illusion material. And I'm not sure if they recorded this at the same time for possible inclusion on Use Your Illusion. Very possible. But I know that Michael was around in the States a lot at the time, trying to get his solo career off the ground and get over here in the States. But that's a true duet right there between Axl Rose and his hero, Michael Monroe, one the greatest frontman of all time. So very cool that happened. I remember that song being played on my local radio station. I don't know if it was serviced as a single because they made the video for Since I Don't Have You. And then also the same station wound up playing Hair of the Dog after a while. But maybe the idea was for Ain't It Fun to maybe be that song. It definitely is really cool, dark, and very powerful. They do a great job. And being honest, the cover might be better. And I love the Dead Boys. And then we close things off with the Guns cover of Fears, I Don't Care About You, which I realize after years and years now, the first time I saw that, I had seen footage of Fear playing that in the first Decline of Western Civilization film through highlights. And not realizing that that was the same song because it was such a crazy raw performance. It was kind of hard to get the lyrics out of that. But... Wound up becoming a big Fear fan later on. And it's cool that Fear is back right now, by the way. They got a new album out as of this recording. And I haven't heard it yet. That's how new it is. But yes, between that and what Mustaine did with Lee Ving and MD45, Fear became a band that I needed to know after a while in the 90s. Yes, there it is. Fun version of I Don't Care About You, which on the gang vocals right there, one of the people doing background vocals on that song, fun fact, is Ricky Rackman, who I just saw a few months ago on the One Foot in the Gutter tour. Ricky, very entertaining guy, still has that fun personality right there and can talk. So he's definitely one of us. All right, let's finish off the show here tonight with yet another twofer, because this makes all the sense in the world. I talked about a few segments ago, Genesis putting out two different live albums in back-to-back years. Well, Iron Maiden definitely upped the ante in addition to upping the irons with two live albums in the same year from the same tour. So in the spring of 93, Maiden put out a real live one, which I don't know the background on the idea to do this, but obviously the bit on a real live one is to focus on material that existed after live after death so basically from somewhere in time on up until what they're doing right now and i don't know if this was always the case but putting out the sequel in the fall of 93 called a real dead one featuring just stuff from before that era the the first era of the band from the first album all the way up to power slave i don't know what the intention was there maybe the label wanted old stuff on a live album i don't know i don't know the idea if it was always just the idea to do this I think they should have taken it a step further and have a real live one just strictly be European shows and then a real dead one being U.S. shows from the same tour because that was an infamously bad and not well-attended tour for Maiden in the States. So it would have been funny to have a real dead one be recorded in the place where it was a little bit more dead. 
But yeah, I've got ideas. But yeah, let's represent a real live one and a real dead one. I'm actually going to flip it on the release side and go with the old song first and then the new song last because the pacing on this is just going to be better, trust me. And let's play a little game here. If you're a big Maiden fan, then you will easily know the answer to this question. Try to find out what the significance is of me playing these particular two songs back to back. So let's kick off this two for right here, this double shot of Maiden with
All right, you can't do better than that to close off a show with Fear of the Dark by the great Iron Maiden. And yes, that is the version, to me, as far as I know, that's the version that kicked off the real, true, definitive live version, the way it's always performed now with the fans interacting and singing along with the melody. It started with that particular version. Go into the source right there. But let's uh, get some info from both songs that we just played. We started off with Prowler from A Real Dead One. That was recorded, and I I wish I hadn't thought to do this. I was like, I'm going to find out which venues, because it's multi-venue live album. It's not one specific show. It's highlights. But Prowler was recorded at Palagiaccio di Marino. That's the name of the venue. And it's in Marino, Italy, or by Rome. So there you go. That's fun. Not an old Colosseum or anything. It was apparently a brand new facility at that time. And that's where Prowler was taken from. And then much more easy to pronounce. Fear of the Dark was recorded at the Ice Hall in Helsinki, Finland. So you boys out there in Helsinki changed the way that this song was performed live. Even just the fans really wanting to hear this song and be a part of the show. So who knows if that recording had never come out, that they would play that song pretty much at every show they would ever do from that point on. Who knows? Because Fear of the Dark wasn't like a super successful album. But the song Fear of the Dark is an absolute stone-cold Iron Man classic. And I believe it to be for this particular live version for that reason. So yeah. And did you figure it out? Did you guess what I was doing there by playing those particular two songs back-to-back? Okay, if you don't know, and if you're not a Maiden nerd, then Prowler is the very first song on the very first Iron Maiden studio album, and Fear of the Dark, at the time of that recording of that live show and that live album, was the very last song from their latest studio album. So a nice little book in there to Iron Maiden's career. I was going to say Bruce Dickinson's career in Maiden, because he would take off for a few years after the Fear of the Dark tour, but no, he did not sing on the original Prowler. So I always like hearing like the deeper cuts of Paul Diano sung by Dickinson. It's always neat to hear that. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed those two. Hope you enjoyed the whole show. Let me know what you liked and what you didn't like and all that fun stuff. We'll be back just in a day or two with part three of The Odds and Ends of 1993. Got a ton of more fun stuff to play for you as we build up to the big albums of 1993, the big gigantic countdown. And before all that, stay tuned. For my better half, Nola, with the plugs, followed by the best damn outro song in all the podcasting business. Take it away, Nola. We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cats Ruby and Ripley a treat. We are on Twitter at RockStrikes10, and the direct email is RockStrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have Rock Strikes 10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high-quality, soft-as-heck, next-level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message for more details or to order. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going all the way back to episode number one. 
While you're on cnjradio.com, check out some of these other quality shows. The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. And the I Am Vinyl Podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. We also highly recommend that you check out our good friend Mark Striegel, who can now be heard exclusively on Sirius XM as part of Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation. Last, but certainly not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun. Post-game show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it.